working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. The second half of the sermon, as we've been uh, teaching you, and we're going to beat this theme all summer long because of its importance, is the, uh, it's, it's about learning to live inside out. It's about learning to identify the issues of the heart so that you can live out of your heart. Because to be blunt, that's where you're going to live from. That's what life comes from. And uh, what Jesus is going to be unpacking for us all summer long are different issues that are heart struggles. But when we get our heart tuned in, focused the way God wants it to be focused, what we're going to see is that life happens. Life happens the way God designed it to happen. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 24. First, let's, let's pray. Well, Father, thank you. Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for the chance to um, celebrate our dads. Thank you for the chance to, you've honored me to be even be a dad. Thank you for that. Thank you, Father, for the men in this room that uh, may not be physical dads, but who father and shepherd and mentor uh, young men and women. Thank you. That, that's, that's something all of us can do as men or women. Thank you, Father, for the importance of your word, and thank you for the wisdom of it. And especially today, I thank you for the honesty of uh, the words of Jesus. I need it. So would you speak to me, and hopefully through the process of unpacking a lot of Scripture today, speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. As always, I've provided an outline for you. If you want to take a few notes, let me just give you a warning. If you want to get maximum value out today, you need to do that. Because I am going to dump a lot of information on you, but hopefully information that can really be transforming in terms of our lives. I know just as I worked on it, God's working on me. Jesus is in a part of this sermon in which he raises the issue of our relationship to stuff. Our relationship to material things, money. And it got me thinking about life as it was designed to be lived, even by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden way back in the beginning, even before sin happened. And let me ask you a question. Do you think Adam had money? Did Adam get a paycheck? I think he did. Now, he didn't get literal paychecks. He didn't get currencies. He didn't get bills with pictures on them. So in that sense, if you said no, you are right. So give yourself credit for that. But I think he did get a paycheck. Okay, so now we're all on the same. I don't like anybody thinking they're wrong as you start my sermon. But you were. No, Adam did get a paycheck. But here's how it worked. You see, even in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever even raised its ugly head... God said to Adam, and this is exactly what he said. He said, Adam, here is your little piece of my pie. Here is your little piece of the planet. Here is a garden. And and he gave Adam two things to do to the garden. And they were captured in two words. He said, Adam, Genesis 2.15. He said, I want you to cultivate it. I want you to cultivate it. It's a Hebrew word for make it productive. Make it more productive. Make it produce. I want you to cultivate it. Secondly, I want you to keep it. But you understand the Hebrew word for keep there has nothing to do with ownership. It has to care for it could be a better translation. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to care for it. And then, Adam, I want you to enjoy yourself and eat up. 
I want you to eat of, in fact, every tree of the garden, except even as you're enjoying my little garden that I'm entrusting to you. It's my garden, not yours. Remember that. We'll come back to that. But even as you're enjoying it, as you're cultivating it, as you're taking care of it, and as it produces, I want you to eat up. But always remember that the biggest priority is to obey me, is to love me, not the stuff, not the garden. Love the giver, not the garden. You see, even from the very beginning, I think the truth of the matter is uh, making a living somehow, caring for ourselves and our families somehow, uh, bringing in a paycheck somehow was always part of God's design. God's design for life could be summarized somewhat by these words. God provides us with resources. And then God says, take those resources, cultivate them, keep them, work them, and then harvest from the goods. And eat, and the phrase that's used in Scripture is eat of the fruit of your labors. So the kind of the master plan for life is that, look, I want to give you something to work with, God says. And I want you to take that, cultivate it, keep it. I want you to work hard. I want you to get a, quote, paycheck. Now, in that culture, the paycheck was one of two things, a harvest or a herd, okay? Because people were, as it says in Genesis 4, most people were either a tiller of the ground or a keeper of herds. So the reality is you had a harvest, that was your paycheck. You had a herd, that was your paycheck. You need little, new little lambs are born, welcome to paycheck time. So they received paychecks, but not to drop in the bank. They, you know, you know, in that day, they, they kind of pl- plucked them off a tree and plopped them in a basket. We kind of pull them from, a, from one bank account, from the company. They write us a check. We plop it in our bank account. That's how it works today. But it's really the same principle. Again, notice the key things. God provides. That's where it starts. And then we take what he provides, and we've got to decide what to do with it. God gives each of us a piece of the pie, or maybe a better metaphor, God gives each of us a pie, and then we decide what to do from there. And I think that's kind of where it gets tough to figure out. Watch this little video and see if you can identify at all. You even have permission to laugh at this if it feels that way, okay? Here it comes.
brought the pie. Here's the one I hope you notice from that, okay? And we'll unpack this a little bit as we go through the message. The pie is not the problem. I like pie. The pie is a gift from God. The challenge I face in my life, and maybe you can identify with that, is how do you cut it? How do you cut it? How much do you eat? How much do you save? How much do you share? Even how much do you give? How much do you use to serve other people? I love that closing line of that. Dude, he brought the pie. And yet he's sitting at the end of the table. Our possessions can be a source of joy and enjoyment. They can also be a means of worshiping the very one who provides the pie. Not just the fruit from the tree, but the, but the pie. He bakes the pie. He delivers the pie. And there's one thing Americans are good at. It's consuming the pie. Let me give you a few quotes. That even in today's tough economic times, Money and the American Dream article gives this info. It says there are about 1 billion credit cards, according to Consumer Reports in the U.S., an average of seven cards per person. The alarming fact is they have an average balance at the end of the month after the bills are paid of about 1642 were a total of an average of 11000 in retail debt at 15 to 18% interest is the average, not the extreme, but the average American use of credit card. Dave Ramsey puts it this way. He says, debt is something you get into when you spend as much as you claim to make. We are an eating, consuming people, and we enjoy it. But yet the research also indicates something surprising, and that is that we are eating more and we are enjoying it less. Money Magazine, not exactly a place where you expect to find something that might be a little closer to biblical wisdom. Money Magazine did an article a few years ago, not during this recessionary period, but actually 2004, which was kind of at the peak of when people were receiving more uh, than any other time in the last decade. So when times were good, this is what they wrote based on their research. Quote, how do you buy happiness? It's cheap. Is having a lot of bucks not bringing you lots of bliss? Maybe the problem is in your head. Then I'll show you a few quotes from it. Make love, not money. That was the most unusual message of this research note of the summer from a stock strategist, James Montier, at the Dresner, Kleinwart, and Wozenstein. Now, I, I, can I say that again? That just sounds fun. That sounds smart. Dresner, Kleinwart, and Wozenstein, the investment agency, urging his wealthier, well-heeled clients to set aside thoughts of stocks for a moment. And here's the quote: "Focus instead on things that really make folks happy." And then later in the article, it concludes the paragraph this way. If you can't be with the stuff you love, love the stuff you're with. Can we sing that? If you can't be, can I tell you? Okay, you know, anyway. 
Yeah, if you can't be with the stuff you love, then love the stuff you're with. So even Money Magazine recognized that, that the yearning and desiring, the greediness that I've got to have more is actually robbing us of happiness. But yet as I listen to even that advice, which has a little bit of truth mixed in it, in other words, be a little more content with what you have, eat your pie and be happy. But love the stuff you're with? Is that the answer to dealing with money? Is loving the stuff you're with really the answer to life, to getting money problems under control? Is that the secret and the source of solving our money problems like debt and stress and anxiety and conflict in marriage and relationships and all the other stuff that robs us of life in and around money? Well, Jesus in today's short passage is going to give you a different answer to that question. Some ancient wisdom is going to go to the heart of this matter of us and our stuff or us and money, us and possessions. And what Jesus is going to teach us is, remember, the pie is not the problem. Say that with me. The pie is not the problem. It's what we do with it. It's how we think about it. It's how we feel toward it. It's where and how much are our affections focused on it. Jesus is going to go to the heart of the issue because Jesus knows that, to be honest, life is lived out of your appetites of the soul, out of your hungers, out of your loves, out of your desires. So what I want to do today is is to talk about money, but we're going to talk more about the heart because I want to focus in today on what I think the root of this issue is because Jesus brings it to the surface in Matthew 6.24, okay? Just to set up the context, here we go. Matthew 6.24, look at it with me. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth or possessions. You can't serve both. I call it the inside-out principle. And the inside-out principle, as we unpack this, if you want to follow my outline, is that the big idea of the summary is you will follow your heart. You will eventually live as your heart is on the inside. Life comes from the inside out. Therefore, if you want to change the outside of your life, the better way to do it is not to focus there, but to focus on issues of the heart. Where do we learn this? Let me just review some things we've taught in the past. Proverbs 4.23. Let's read it out loud together. Here it is. Watch over. Read it with me. Here we go. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. See, life flows from the heart. You can't help but let that happen. A second core principle we learned last week. Here it is. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Here are some excerpts from it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Where Jesus taught last week, moths eat and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Why is that smart? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus is going to continue that theme today because what he's pointing out is the importance, and we hit this last week, of identifying your treasure. Because normally I would think where my heart is, that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm, my treasure goes, right? My heart leads me to my treasure. And he actually says, it's actually inverted. He says, wherever you decide your treasure is, your heart tends to follow. You know, as soon as I began, for example, I grew up in West Virginia. Therefore, I have an investment in the West Virginia Mountaineers. I'm a big fan. When they're on TV, I'm watching, okay? I'll, you know, I'll, I'll buy the extra cable package just to get those few games. 
Now, then my daughter shows up and she goes to UCLA. Any Bruins in the house? Okay. Any USC guys in the house? Good. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll slow down then. Okay, but anyway, um, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Bad joke. Bad joke. Bad joke. My son-in-law, by the way, went to USC. Okay, my daughter went to UCLA. That's called an, an interfaith marriage. But anyway, yeah. But the reality is, you know, once I got invested in UCLA, once I, I didn't even go there. But once I laid down some bucks, paid some currency, made an investment in the school, they should name a dorm after me, okay? You know, once you pay four years of tuition, the reality is your heart cares more about that. You see, whatever you treasure in life, your heart moves towards your treasure. That's what Jesus taught us last week. And by the way, if you did not pick up your copy of the treasure principle, we gave every family here or every individual a copy of this treasure principle. So pick one up today. I really encourage you. This thing, I believe, is the best short read on helping me understand my relationship to money that's ever been written. So it's our gift to you. They're on the table. Pick one up later. But then today, Jesus now goes beyond this because after saying, look, be smart, man. Lay up your treasure in heaven and your heart will follow toward heavenly things. Then he follows in verse 24 and he explains why it's so important to make sure that you get the treasure right. Why is that so important? And here's why. He says, for no one can serve two masters. Verse 24. For either he will hate the one, love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You just can't serve God and wealth. Now, as I mentioned last week, I think most of my reaction to that, and most of you, if you're honest, when you hear Jesus say that, you say, I'm not sure I buy that. Because, you know, I, I think I love God, and I also really love stuff. And I, I think it's possible. I'll just love both. And Jesus says, you know, you really can't love both. Now, I'm going to unpack for you today why Jesus is right. Now, I always know Jesus is right. I think he's God, and as God, he's right. But sometimes I read what he says, and I go, I don't know about that. You can tell I've done that a lot in my life, okay? But the reality is, this is why he is indeed right. It gets into identifying the fact that, that the loves of our heart are the real issue. So if these are the uh, kind of the principles of the Inside Out series, now let's unpack the practice of how this actually operates at the heart level. The focus of the affections of the heart. Second part of the message. Here we go. And, and it's really built on three, yay, four principles. And here they are. I'll give them to you quick. Principle number one. Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says this. Everyone will have a dominant master. Now, how do I spot what is the dominant master in my life? He says there's two masters. There's God and there is possessions and wealth. And you're going to love one or the other. You can't love them both. What does God mean by that? What does Jesus mean? Okay, the first thing he says is, look, one of, them is, one of them is going to win out. Everyone has a dominant master. And I would define that as Jesus does. It is whatever or whoever gets your love, your devotion, and hence your service. Jesus uses three words in Matthew 6, 24. He says you will either love one and hate the other. That's the issue of love. You will be devoted to one. You'll have a sense of devotion to the one. You know, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm there, okay? And despise the other. Or you will, and you cannot serve one or the, you, you can't serve them both. You will serve one or the other. So the one that you serve is the one you're devoted to. The one that you're devoted to is the one you love. See, the logic works backwards. 
So if you want to know, well, which one do I really love the most? I suggest, well, if I look at your lifestyle, if I look at your checkbook, which one gets the biggest part of your devotion and which one do you care the most about servicing or serving? And it really begins to convict me because I begin to realize that, you know something, on a continuum of always loving God more than loving stuff, I'm not sure I always have it straight myself. Okay, I think this is an ongoing struggle of the human heart because our heart is drawn to what we can see and touch and feel that we rely upon to meet the needs of our life. And, you know, and all the stuff is like right there. I can touch it. I can own it, supposedly. I can possess it. I can't see God. I have His Word. I have His promises. I have His work on the cross. But I can't see Him. I can't touch Him. I can't put Him in the bank. At least it feels that way. But everyone will have a dominant master. Number two, one will win out. I've really already got ahead of myself. One will win. They will not rule together. Someone comes out on top and someone drops to second place under it. In fact, the very language Jesus uses in the first part especially, when he says, you know, you will grow to love one and hate the other. It's a Jewish idiom. Now, when you hear you'll love one, hate the other, in English, in our culture, you start thinking of emotions. You know, love is that, oh, I love you, you know, and, and hate is oh, angry at you. You know, and, and, and when Jesus uses you love one and hate the other, I don't think he's focused on emotions of love. He's focused on the devotion of love. That's why he says, you'll love one, hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and not the other. You will serve one and not the other. Now, how do I know that's true? That same Jewish idiom of you've got to love one, you're going to hate the other. Jesus, in a different place, people were following him, wanting to be his disciples, and he shocked the crowd. He stopped the crowd, and he said this. He said, you know, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a follower of mine, you need to hate your mother. In fact, you need to hate your father. You need to hate your children. In fact, you need to hate your very life if you're going to be my follower. Now, because you've got to love me, not them. When they use this love-hate paradigm, it was a metaphor for who gets first place and who falls under. You know, Jesus was never recommending, especially on Father's Day, that we hate our fathers if we're Christians. Okay, can we get that out of the way? And he certainly didn't want us to hate our mothers on Mother's Day. We, God wants us to honor fathers and mothers. And I think our culture gets it pretty right. They spend $5 billion more dollars loving on moms than they do dads. That's just Mother's Day versus Father's Day, a $5 billion gap. But I'm not angry. I'm not bitter, okay? But, you know, but the reality is that's just how the culture does it. I think the women deserve it. Amen? Yeah, you better say amen. You're going to sleep bad tonight. Yeah. yeah but the reality is... Someone wins. They will not rule together. So when he says you, you, you end up hating one, loving the other, what Jesus is, he's not talking about feeling an emotion of romance toward it or hatred toward it. He's talking about somebody comes out on top and the others get subjected below. He's talking about devotion, not emotion. They will not rule together. Third principle. Both masters, therefore, will woo you, offering to satisfy the desires of your soul. In other words, I believe that both God and money lay out reasons why we should love them most. 
reasons why they should be the focus of our devotion, the focus of our service, and the focus of our affections or our love. You know, and, and the problem is that that is where the battle is going to be waged. And, and it's when we begin to love money too much, when we begin to love it more than we love our God in reality, that, that we really begin to experience the painful side of life. Now, I want you to leave Matthew 6:24 for a minute. Turn to the second best passage on money I know of. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. Flip there. 1 Timothy 6. Here we go. Got to keep moving. Stay with me. Here is the root of the problem. And this is principle four out of what this passage is built around. And that is this. Money is not the problem. It's the love of it that gets us in trouble. That's the principle. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, let me show you the, the parallel that he builds here. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You're going to die do- totally broke. If we have food and covering with these, we'll be content. We'll come back to that next week. But those who want to get rich, now notice these phrases, who want to, underline that, get rich, fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, underline that, which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, underline that, longing, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a grief. You see, the contrast is between what God says, real joy, real freedom as it relates to money, is being content with godliness. Content with godliness. That is real freedom financially. That's freedom from anxiety. That's freedom from greed. That's freedom from the things that drive us to make huge mistakes in our lives. That's freedom to be able to keep your priorities the way they ought to be. To keep money in its place. But it's the want to, desire, love of, and longing for that gets us into trouble. That's the issue. Now, very few people set out in life to be a lover of money. I think if you did a survey and said, what's your goal in life? A lot of people say, I want to make a lot of money. I want to be successful. So do you want to be driven by money? You want to live for the love of money? Very few people that I've met would check that box. And of those of us in this room, many of whom, perhaps most of whom have placed their faith in Christ, I would hope that none of us would want to check that box. Yeah, I want to be really kind and gentle and a lover of money. (laughs) You know, we wouldn't say that. So the reality is, why do we struggle to keep it under control? Why do we struggle with the way that we cut the pie? And I think it illustrates who and what gets our attention in real life. You know, it's kind of interesting, as I thought about that little video clip, what if the man who, who God brought the pie to, what if he did one simple thing? What if he had started at the other end of the table when he started cutting the pie? What if the very first slice of the pie, whatever, however big he wants to cut it, how much do you love God? How devotion, how much do you want to serve God? Your first cut of the pie goes to God. And then you take the rest of the pie and you cut it as according to whatever, you know, down the row. Wouldn't it be interesting? how that video would change. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about a principle in Scripture called first fruits giving. I think it's taught clearly in the Old Testament and it's clearly implied in the New Testament, and that is this. God is my highest priority. He's my number one love. And therefore, when I cut my pie, 
before I cut any other pieces, I cut whatever piece God leads me to cut, and I give it to God. You may be thinking, okay, but is that going to like suck up half the pie? I mean, how big am I going to cut? We'll come back to that. I'll give you some of my best counsel on that. But that's something you've got to work through with God. But as you're reading the treasure principle and as we're working through the series, I hope this is speaking into your life and helping you think and rethink how and when do I cut the pie and when do I serve God his peace? It's a good question. So how is it that money and the things associated with money, you know, things like our possessions, our jobs, our careers, making it, spending it, how, how does it get such a grip on our heart? I want to spend the rest of our time working through the final section of this message. I call it the courtship battle. It's the courtship for my soul. It's, it's being wooed by God on the one hand and wooed by my stuff or possessions on the other. And what we're going to see, and, and it was fascinating as I worked on this this week, is that there are desires of the heart which I think are God-given desires. And I want to show you the quick overview first. The desires of the heart are these. Yeah, and, these, and there's more than these, but here's some that came to my mind. We have a desire to have pro, pro, provisions. I, I call it ownership in your printed outline. Scratch out ownership and write the word provisions. I think it's a better term, and you'll understand why later. Secondly, there is the desire for security, to feel safe. The desire for significance, to feel important. The desire for competence, to feel or be able and gifted. The desire for achievement, that is to work hard and succeed. The desire to be loved, that is to love and to be loved. And the desire for eternity because we know that there is something beyond this world. Now, I really think those are seven desires of the human heart that are actually God-given desires and the way God has kind of programmed us as people. Now, there are others, and you know, but, but I, I, think it's, I think Adam in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever happened, would have had these seven desires. So I don't think these are the problem. The problem is, how do we try to meet those desires? The problem is not the desires, it's how we meet them. Because both God and money want to be our great provider. But depending on which way you go, it's a very different set of uh, descriptors of life. Let me walk you through these, and I'm going to really go through these quickly. We may not even cover them all, but we'll get started. Desires of the heart. Are you going to love my God or love my stuff? That's kind of the the two balance. We'll build this chart. And as I go to love my God or love my stuff, that first desire of the heart, I used to call it ownership. Now I call it provisions. It's me and my stuff. How do I think about it? And, And the way the world thinks about it is I am a controlling owner. It is mine and I own it. What Scripture actually teaches is whatever pie God gives you, it's still God's pie. It's on loan to you to use. And you are not a controlling owner. We're to be a faithful steward. It is God's and I manage it. I live off of it. I manage it. I use it. But it still belongs to God. It's God's pie. And, 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 and then once you understand that principle, you say, well, Dale, where'd you get that? Let me give you a couple passages. Uh, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Just write the references down and you'll come back to them. Psalm 24, 1. The Lord is even the source of my abilities, my resources for making money. Some of you right now are thinking, no, you don't understand. God doesn't go to my work. I go to my work. But God is the source of who you are. He's the source of every bit of your skills, your talents, your gifts, the opportunities you've had in life. God is the giver of 
All of that. In fact, Scripture says in James that God is the giver of all good gifts. All good gifts come from above, from the Father of lights. Number two, second principle. I have a need as I have provisions. I need for a sense of security to feel safe. I think that's a normal need. Nothing wrong with that. But how do you answer it? If, if I'm the controlling owner of my stuff and it depends on me, I become a fearful collector of stuff because I trust in it and it makes me feel secure. If I have enough stuff, I'm secure. I feel safe. If, I, if my trust is in my God and my love is in my God, for my God, then I have peace instead of fear. I trust in Christ. I am secure not because of what I have in the bank, but because I am banking on my God because I'm his child. And he promises to take care of me. Here's a great verse. Matthew 13, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. Therefore, be free from the love of money. Here's our passage. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Then it says later, therefore, I will say, the Lord is my helper. And I should have added the next phrase. The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I shall not be afraid. That has nothing to do with spiritual fear. It has to do with financial fear. That's the context of the passage. I have no fear about whether or not I will be provided for because I'm putting my trust in God and I'm his kid. That's where freedom comes from. That's where life comes from. We also have a need not just to feel secure, but to feel significant, a need for significance. That is to feel needed or important. Again, if I'm trusting and, and loving my stuff, then that leads to coveting because I want more, or you might say, I buy, therefore I am. It's the essence of my life, is consuming. There's a great article uh, by Jim Wallace that says this. It was from an article called, I Shop, Therefore I Am. He says, in truth, we have become an addicted society. Many of our psychological therapists and healers who work with substance abuse have concluded that the whole social context that we live in today is an addicted one. Drugs and alcohol are not our only addictions. The addiction to materialism is fed every hour of every day in this society. And it's not only legal to feed the addiction, it is the whole purpose of the system. It is our reason for being as a people to possess and to consume. It's an honest statement. That's why, by the way, Celebrate Recovery, for example, will have usually a group for people that struggle with this as well as other issues. You should check it out. Now, if I am not coveting, but I find my significance in the fact that I am content because I was purchased by God. I belong to Him. Therefore, I am. See, the essence of my significance is found in Christ. It's found, you know, I am a, I am a royal child of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm a part of His kingdom and an important part of His kingdom. In fact, He has purpose for me. In fact, let me give you a verse. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, crafted, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, that's real significance. We sing it, we say it, we read it, but if we really believe it, then it should affect the way we relate to our stuff. Because I don't need more stuff to be important. I don't need more stuff to look important. I got my importance is found in my relationship with Christ. My security is my relationship with Christ. My, my whole approach to ownership changes. See, everything changes. Let me blow through the rest of this real quick. Therefore, my boasting turns to thankfulness. When I think of the need to feel competent, to feel able or gifted, 
If I'm loving my stuff, I, I boast in it. It's a source of pride. I got to show it off, make sure everybody notices it. But if I'm loving my God, I'm just thankful. If God blesses me and I have more stuff and I'm able to, am I able to, to live at a higher standard? It produces thankfulness. It's a source of praise instead of pride. What a huge difference. James 1.16, every good and perfect gift, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It changed the way I think about my success. doesn't mean that it's wrong to try to be more successful. In fact, let's go to the next one, achievement. You know, achievement is okay to work hard and try to succeed. I think God wants us to do that. I think He wants us to do our best. In fact, Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In other words, to work for your earthly bosses as if you're serving Jesus Christ. Wow. That raises the bar for an employee, doesn't it? So he wants us to work hard, and I don't think he's against achieving. But if we achieve for the wrong reasons, it's to display my good. I did it myself. The other side of the scale is I declare his goodness. God did it. He did it through me. He's working through me. I don't understand why, but to God be the glory. Great things he has done. What about the need to be loved? To be loved and to be loved. To feel love and to, and to give love. Well, you know, if, if I'm committed to loving my stuff, here's what we do. We barter with love. I give in order to get love. I call it bartering. Bartering never, ever ends because i got to keep giving so I can get more. But if I understand the grace of God, then I give by grace. I love to give. Instead of I give to get love, I just love to give. And God's love never ends for me. And, and, and in His love, it changes how I think about my stuff. Now my possessions become a source out of which I can love more, not just possess more. See, it changes my attitude and my approach to love. And then last but not least, we desire eternity, something beyond this life. And the reality is, and I want to save this one for next week, the reality is there is something beyond this life. And when you choose to make God the preeminent love of your life, Jesus Christ the preeminent love of your life, and you, let, you, you act as a faithful steward, and you trust Him for your security and your significance and your importance, and you give your achievements to Him, you find your competence in Him, when you flow that side of the spectrum, you earn what Jesus calls eternal riches that you will actually own forever. Isn't that interesting? When I give up ownership of my stuff on earth, I actually position myself to own treasure in heaven. So if you were to break that thing down and show you the whole chart, here it is. Bring up the next page, next slide. My approach to provision, security, significance, confidence, achievement, how we love and how we receive love, and our approach to eternity changes completely. Okay? So the question is, who's your master? Who's your master? It's kind of interesting that um, both the world and Christ offer us the same things. Let me read you a quote that came from an email that I received from one of my dear family members this past week as she was listening to my sermon online. 
from last week. She said, you know, Dad, she said, ultimately, money is a means to beauty, pleasure, security, status, power, and control. However, the solutions money provides for these base desires, these needs and these wants, is only a band-aid. The beauty it buys is not lasting. The pleasure it affords does not satisfy. The security it offers fails. The status, power, and control it grants was never meant to be ours in the first place. And it leads to self-deception, self-idolatry regarding our abilities and, and importance. Ironically, a relationship with God, with Christ, provides lasting and true inner beauty, satisfying and eternal pleasure, security in our identity with Christ, status among the angels, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and a rest under the control of an all-knowing and loving God. Who's your master? Who's really your master? And how does that affect what you do with the pie? We're going to move right into communion and tie it into the sermon. So as the band comes up, let me just tell you why it fits. It's because communion is a time in which, look at me, don't look at the band. You can look at them later. Communion, look at is a time when we remember what Christ did for us. And he woos our heart back to love him more than anything else. You take this time, spend some time to reflect as we pass first the bread. We're going to pass just the bread for the ushers. Just pass the bread. You reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Make him, restore him to the preeminent love of life. Father, thank you. As our ushers come and pass the bread and as we hold it and think on the broken body of Jesus, we thank you for all that you did for us, for the life that it delivers to us. We worship you. We reflect on what you did when you sent your son for us to give us security, significance, and to call us into a meaningful life of purpose that we might achieve for you. We might enjoy not just life on this planet, but enjoy eternity with you. We ask that you woo us through the cross. In Christ's name.